because of that. I'm just telling you in advance so you can put a little lipstick on. That's what I always do when the family gets out the commercial. <laughs> Not everybody wears lipstick, but I need it. need all the help I can get. I do, because you know what happened? I was late this morning. I got all the way from my house to 15501, which takes me about 10 minutes, when suddenly I realized I had on my husband's large, bright red Crocs. <laughs> I was almost tempted to just go ahead because you can't see my feet anyway from here. <laughs> but I have to go a few places after Bible study today. <laughs> I had to go out to the dog cage. I have been super grandma this summer. Not only did my son come back from his Middle East uh, deployment, and I flew out to Hawaii to see him come in to Pearl Harbor on the ship, and then I flew by myself from Hawaii to California so then I could see him fly in formation in the fighter jets as they came into California, his next base, and it was all exciting. But um, then I helped move my oldest daughter and her husband and four kids and two dogs to Moore County. Praise the Lord, they only spent two nights in our house because all summer long I was desperately looking for a rental and I found one. And they now live 4.9 miles from me, but at least it's not in my house. But I was keeping alone last week um, four kids, because my daughter had to go to close on her house in Virginia Beach. Her husband's grandmother died, so he had to fly to Denver, Colorado, and he was there for the funeral. My other daughter and son-in-law and their family were down in Florida, and my son flew into Charleston. South Carolina, so my husband went down to see him. I couldn't see him because I had to keep my oldest daughter's four kids, two dogs, and watch three houses, take care of three houses. <laughs> it's been like that, really, my summer, that is, this has been one of the busiest, was it for you? One of the busiest, longest summers I've ever had. But it was good busy, it was all good busy. But I'm glad it's over, I'm glad we're here, and I'm glad that we're gonna ex study one of the most exciting books, I think, in the Bible. Um, and it's ironic because I feel like I've come full circle because this is the study that I started the Bible study with. This, we are beginning our 29th year of Bible study today. And the first study back in 1987 was on the book of Daniel. So um, one of my son-in-laws said, well, maybe this is the year you'll croak. Because <laughs> you, know, you start and finish. With that. You know what? That was just saying what I was thinking. I was thinking the same thing. Oh, all right. Anyhow, um, pray for me, because with seven grandchildren, all little and young, I might not have a m much of a mind, as this morning proved coming to... I was out in the dog cage with the Crocs. That's when I, I just got in the car and completely forgot about changing my shoes. <laughs> all right, so everybody has a chart. We'll be looking at... Keep that chart. It will be sent on your notes that you'll get an email probably later this afternoon. Don't worry about taking notes today because everything I'm going to say is going to be in the email notes and even more that I'll have time, then I'll have time to um, cram in these, this hour. I thought I was going to just do one introduction lesson to the book of Daniel, but it's going to be at least two or three introduction lessons before we get into the actual scripture, verse 1. But these are necessary. Today we're going to be looking at the specialities of the book, and then next week we're going to look at the skeptics of the book, because Daniel is more criticized um, than any other book in the Bible. Even more than Genesis, Daniel is criticized by the skeptics. And so we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to look at the setting for the book, and we'll get into some history. But uh, So keep the chart, because we'll be looking at that from time to time, but also we'll be looking at it this morning as well. 
This is lesson one in our study of Daniel, introduction, an extraordinary book. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your presence to begin this new study, I pray that we would honor you most of all and that we would exalt your son throughout our look at the divinely inspired book of Daniel. We ask that your spirit, Father, would move in a mighty way this year and however long it takes for us to, to get our way through this book and that each of us will know that you have been at work in us, conforming us more and more into the image of your son. We want to live, I, I hope and pray that that is the prayer of, on every heart here, that we want to live in the light of what we learn from your word, and that we want to believe the revelations to us through your prophet Daniel, to understand them better than we ever have before, and that we would be purposed in our hearts to purify ourselves because of the absolute truth contained in them, and that we would be emboldened to share them, to proclaim them to others, that we would be doers of the word, not hearers only. We thank you for your spirit, who is the one who helps us to understand the things that you have spoken, and the one who will convict us if we are not living, as you would have us to be living in these last days. And we thank you in advance, Father, knowing what, that you are going to do a mighty work because your word does not return unto you void. We pray for every one of these women that they would be faithful to finish that which they are beginning today, if that be your will, Father, and that they would per persevere no matter what conflicts will arise in their lives, and we know there will be conflicts, and how much your adversary Satan will attempt to distract us and, and to keep us from this study or will try to convince us that we don't need this, but we pray, Lord, that we will be faithful. We know we are engaged in spiritual warfare with the enemy, the father of lies, who does not want us to understand the truth because the truth is not in him, and he does not abide in the truth, and he knows that it is the truth that sets people free, and he knows that it is the truth that exposes his evil. So by your grace, help each of us to be faithful to honor your word through Daniel, and to esteem your word more precious than even our physical food, for it is. And now we just pray that you will have your will and way. Help your servant to speak clearly and quickly this morning. There's a lot to cover, and we will give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we be begin this morning what I can very confidently say is one of the most fascinating one of the most intriguing books of scripture, and certainly a very appropriate one for us to be studying in our particular time in history. A time when our once Christian nation, we are post-Christian today, uh, in our post-Christian nation, humanism now dominates the decision process of not only our government officials, but most of our citizens. And when hostility toward Christians is becoming increasingly more overt, more open. I've always said it was coming, but I didn't think it was going to be quite this quickly. But Christianity is being criticized and persecuted. Um, so this is a very important book for us to be studying because the book of Daniel reminds us that the sovereign of the universe still reigns from his throne. Amen? He is still in control. He has not deviated from his plan for the culmination of history one single iota. 
He is the one who moves the nations. He is the one who moves the rulers over the chessboard of life. As the Spirit repeatedly <clears throat> reminds us through the inspired writings of Daniel, God both appoints the rulers of this world to their positions of power, and he likewise removes them. So whoever the next president of the United States is going to be, guess who will be putting him or her there? God. God will. He's in control. The book of Daniel is a perpetual warning to leaders and to nations and to world empires in every age that they will all one day give an account of their privileged responsibility as leaders to the one and only living God. And they are held more responsible for their positions. But Daniel doesn't just serve as a warning to rulers of nations and to nations and to world empires. The book of Daniel is a book of examples and warnings that were written for the benefit of all of us. Isn't that what the New Testament tells us about the Old Testament? Doesn't it say, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now all these things happen for examples to us, and they are written for our admonition. It also says in Romans 15:4, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Do we need comfort and hope in these dark days? Yes, yeah, sometimes I, I just have to turn the news off because I get so discomforted and so hopeless, and then I have to remind myself of the truth, that God is orchestrating everything. He is sovereign. Daniel teaches us how to live a life of hope regardless of the darkness of the day and the circumstances. We could say that Daniel is a book for every today and all tomorrows. It's a book that has its feet on the ground and its head in the clouds because it tells us how a man or a woman who sees the future through prophetic revelation, there's a lot of prophecy in the book of Daniel, and we see the future through this book, how a man or woman who sees the future can live for the glory of God in the present. Through the telescopic lens of Daniel, the Lord presented us with his blueprint for the future. And every other eschatological book of scripture, every other eschatological uh, passage of scripture, eschatology is the study of what? End times, okay? So every other, uh, including passages from Joel and Zechariah and Ezekiel and the Olivet Discourse and, of course, the book of Revelation, every, un, every other one fits within the framework that is laid out for us in the book of Daniel, particularly these two sections about the times of the Gentiles and the 70 weeks prophecy. So Daniel is foundational. Daniel is fundamental. Daniel is prophetic, and Daniel is also a very practical book, very, very practical. Now, in this first of at least two or three introductory lessons, we're going to be looking at um, three factors that make this book so special, and they are the man, Daniel himself, his message, and the miracles. That's really easy. The man, the message, and, his, and the miracles of the book. First, the man. Let's talk about the man. Daniel is an extraordinary book because it is the writing of one of the most extraordinary men who ever lived. Daniel. Very, very extraordinary man. When I first studied Daniel, 
I actually, I had a miscarriage between my son and my oldest daughter. I had a miscarriage. And I named that little baby boy Daniel because I was so impressed. I was studying Daniel, and I was so impressed with the character of Daniel. Not a single negative word is spoken or written about Daniel, and he had a long life. So from a teen, he was about 14 or 15 was when he was carried as an exile, a captive from Jerusalem to Babylon, and he lived... 60-plus years over in Babylon. He died in probably about 85 years old. And that's a long lifespan, and never is one negative word written about him. That's pretty amazing. Now, we know he was a sinner, like all of us, because he was born with the Adamic sin nature. So he was a sinner, but the Lord did not put down anything negative, which is unusual because we have a lot of negativity about everybody else in the Bible, don't we? Or, you know, at least we know about some things, even Noah and... Anyhow, nothing negative. The only thing, the only criticism of him came from ungodly, jealous men who accused him of his fanatical devotion to his God. Now, because his God is the true God, Jehovah God, that was really not a criticism at all. That was the greatest compliment you could give somebody, that they're fanatical about their love and worship and service to God, the true God. Well, Joseph alone... Besides, of course, Christ. Jesus Christ is the God-man, and he is sinless. But other than him, Joseph alone parallels Daniel in moral fiber and in spiritual resolve. Now, I'm talking about Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph. I always like to do comparisons and contrasts. Well, I got to thinking about both of them. Both men, both of them actually were young teenagers, um, who by way of severe trials in foreign lands, you know, Joseph was just a teenager when he was sold by his own brothers into what land as a slave? The land of Egypt. Of course, Daniel was a teenager when he was taken as a slave into Babylon. Both men, Joseph and Daniel, learned by way of severe trials uh, unwavering spiritual discipline. Instead of turning bitter, they turned better, didn't they? Because through great loss, they trusted in their God, in God. They trusted in God, and they learned how to make lemons into lemonade. You know, life gives us a lot of lemonades. What you, uh, lemon. <laughs> a lot of lemons. What are you to do with those lemons? Make them into lemonade. Now, my husband is currently teaching, which is kind of funny to me, but he's teaching the college and career Sunday school class at our church. <laughs> he's having a hard time relating. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I think they're having a hard time too. But one of the young girls was talking about how you take your lemons and you make them into lemonade. And then she said this, which I love. Not only do you take them and make lemonade, but you demand chocolate. <laughs> I said, that is good. I've gotten to share that with the ladies. So like Joseph, Daniel rose from the pit of captivity as a slave to the pinnacle of power. Daniel was even more than Joseph. He was even exalted and honored and respected and beloved by, beloved by more than one earthly king. Joseph was beloved by Pharaoh of Egypt. But Daniel was exalted and beloved by two kings, one over Babylon and one over the empire of the Medo-Persians. He was prime minister over two empires, and he, as Joseph, exerted great influence in world affairs. Think about it. 
Why did the Magi, the wise men, come from that area of the world to the young Jesus to present him with gifts, acknowledging that he was the king of the Jews, the promised Messiah? It was through the influence of Daniel that the people of that area heard the truth, had great influence, just as Joseph did. However, infinitely higher um, in exaltation is the fact that Daniel was beloved and he was exalted and he was honored by almighty God. Isn't that so much infinitely greater than even to be exalted by a king or a president to be exalted by God? Three times, three, three times. <laughs> I'm not doing well this morning. Three times in the book of Daniel, it calls him greatly beloved by God. And to me, those would be the best words that we could ever hear to be greatly beloved by Almighty God. So the book of Daniel is extraordinary because of the sterling character and the integrity of the human author, Daniel, the manner in which he and his companions handled their life tests that came their way is an extraordinary example to all of us of what true dedication to God involves. Life is full of tests, isn't it? And they face some really severe ones. We all we all face tests. They come just about almost every day, <laughs> certainly every week, and you never know with the next phone call when a life test is going to bombard you. The world, I would say, and I'm sure you would all agree with me, that the world is in desperate need today of godly men and women and young people who will take an uncompromising stand for the truth of God's word. Wouldn't you say there is a severe shortage in the world today of this sort of person? Men, women, young people of integrity and sterling moral fiber and character who won't compromise, especially in places of prominent influence. Think of Washington, D.C. We need people like Daniel in prominent places. As just a young teen, Daniel was faced with a radical change in his life. You talk about radical. This was radical because he was suddenly transported from the only culture that he had ever known to one that was vastly different. Not only did he lose his freedom, he went from being a free man, free young person, to a slave, a captive, but he was taken from a land that had been founded on faith in the true God and his word to one that was extremely pagan polytheistic, they worshipped many gods, and they were extremely profane. Big change. And the pressure for him as a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old, the pressure for him to change, to adapt to his new situation and just go with the flow was immense. It was tremendous, even to the point of putting his life on the line. But he didn't. He didn't. One of the words when I think of Daniel, one of the main words that pops out in my mind is uncompromising. We need people today who are uncompromising when it comes to the truth of God and his word. So we want to find answers to what it was that set Daniel apart. Why is there a song out there that's dare to be a Daniel? What set him apart? What made him greatly beloved of God? Don't you want to know? Don't you want that to be said of you? How did Daniel succeed in dealing with a very negative change in his circumstances? We should want to know what he did and how he did it and why he took his stand on some issues and not on others. There's a lot of gray areas when it comes to Christianity. You know, should we take a firm stand on this issue 
like that clerk of court did in Kentucky and said, no, I will not put my, my name on the marriage certificate with a homosexual couple. Uh, couple? Was, that, was that an issue she should take a stand on or should she just do it, you know, or quit her job? There's a lot of things we can have debates about. Now. So we need to know where did Daniel draw the line when it came to um, cultural pressure? Because our, we need to know this because our culture and our world are rapidly changing negatively right before our eyes. We don't even need to be transported from one land to another land because our land is changing right under our feet, isn't it? It is. And Daniel and his friends, and we're going to learn not to call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? We're not going to call them those names because those are names that glorify false gods. We're going to be calling them Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And if you can't get that off your tongue, you'll hear me say it enough times that you'll get to calling them their God-fearing, good Hebrew names. But Daniel and his friends demonstrate how we can keep our faith intact and maintain a righteous lifestyle and a biblical worldview in the midst of a godless society, because that is what you and I are living in today. They did not allow themselves to be victims of their circumstances. Rather, they became victors in and over their circumstances. Instead of the culture and the society influencing them, they influenced the culture around them, which is what being salt and light is all about. So what we should be doing. Um, and it was through their faith in God that they became victors. They remained faithful to God in the face of tremendous temptation and pressure to compromise. And thus they are for us living proof of how God blesses committed people. Daniel also, as I said, shows us where to draw the line when it comes to meshing with the multitudes and when it is appropriate not to concede to government, ungodly governmental laws and whatever the Supreme Court puts upon all of us. When is it right not to obey? And when is it right not to concede to cultural pressures? The example of Daniel's life teaches us how to overcome the political correctness of our culture. And aren't you sick up to here with political correctness? Did you hear that Target isn't even going to have gender-related names for their clothing? You can, I mean, you don't go to the girls' department or the boys' department anymore. You go to the gender-neutral department. Weird. Just weird. It's like everything is... Yeah, the, the, yeah unisex uh, bathroom facilities. <laughs> but uh, so the example of Daniel's life teaches us how to, to overcome political correctness, because he did this in two different pagan palaces. He overcame the political correctness of his day. He shined brightly for his Lord in a culture of corruption and ungodliness. Daniel, therefore, could not be, for us, a more important figure to study, because essentially what happened to him is happening to us today. Or would we be willing to be thrown into the lion's den and just trust God, or into the fiery furnace and trust God for the outcome? In a July newsletter that I just received, well, in July, <laughs> um, from the Grace to You ministry of Dr. John MacArthur, he said this. He said, quote, of all the ways to describe the times in which we live, I think the most concise is this, the days are evil. 
Every age since the fall has been dominated by evil. But that doesn't mean it won't become more blatant, more pervasive, grotesque, dangerous, and even institutionalized. They've redefined marriage now for us. Institutionalized. Scripture is clear that over time, evil men will grow worse. What has been surprising is how the moral slide has accelerated in recent years in the United States and how hostility towards Christians has become so overt in such a short time. Usually, a culture changes so slowly that the change is barely perceptible, but not so now. The recent seismic ruptures in our society have been swift and catastrophic, end of quote. Daniel knew, because he knew the other Old Testament writings, he knew of the predictions of coming judgment if they didn't get their act right. You know, the Assyria, by the time of um, the book of Daniel, Assyria had already taken the northern kingdom of Israel. They, they just took them and they amalgamated with the rest of the world. So they were gone from the picture by this time. All that's left is the southern province, the southern kingdom of Judah. That's where Daniel lived, is in Judah. And he had read the, the prophecies of Isaiah. Now Isaiah was about 100 years before the time of Daniel. And Isaiah repeatedly warned the kings and the people of Israel or Judah that if they did not turn from their idolatry and their abominations and their all that they were doing that was evil in the sight of the Lord, that, he, that they were going to face judgment. Daniel knew those predictions. He also knew of the predictions of Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of his. Daniel and Jeremiah lived at the same time, although Je um, Jeremiah was about early 30s when Daniel was just a teenager, so Jeremiah was older. But we know from the book of Daniel that Daniel had the writings of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah had definitely predicted the coming judgment of Judah. He even specifically said that they would be carried off into captivity for 70 years. So Daniel knew of those predictions and he actually became a first-hand participant in the fulfillment of the prophecies of those men and other men like them. Some of the minor prophets were saying the same thing. Daniel experienced the prophesied judgment from its very beginning because he was taken to Babylon in the first exile, there were three times when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came over to Judah and, uh, and took captives out of that land. Daniel was in the very first exile. So from the very beginning, he was a witness of the, the judgment, the fulfillment of all the ju judgment. <clears throat> and can you imagine a young man experiencing the humility of captivity? One day a free man, and actually he was of royal blood. Did you know that? Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, and all the other young men were of royalty. They were noblemen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem. And so uh, for such men, all you know, young guys, the grand illusions for those of uh, a noble birth that must have or might have filled their hearts, that was quickly dissipated when suddenly, I don't know if they had them in bonds or not, probably not, but they were captives and they were taken on that long and difficult trip across rough territory, hot territory, from J Jerusalem over to Babylon. So all those great ideas in their minds were suddenly, I mean, they were humbled in a hurry. As Joseph learned, and as he explained to his own brothers, 
who were the ones that sold him into captivity, but he learned in his later years the Genesis 50-20 principle, didn't he? He learned, as did Daniel, that the Lord God is the universal expert at taking men's evil and using it for what? For good. Turning it to good. What man intends for evil, God can turn to good. He's the expert of that. And one of the greatest ways for a person's heart condition to be understood by him, you know, we don't even understand our own hearts. We do not know what we're capable of. Um, it says that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? So the best, one of the best ways for our to know, us to know our own true heart condition and for others to know our heart condition is through testing. Too bad that's the truth, but that's the way it is, through testing. If you, therefore, are encountering some major changes in your life right now, or if you are facing some difficult trials, and we all have them, Everyone has trials. I think God divinely orchestrates certain trials for certain people, but we all have trials, and we all have changes. You know what? Life is just a series of changes. Just when we think we're getting comfortable, you know, and everything is going smoothly, boom, can be a big change, right? Life is all about changing. We're never the same. We're not the same that we were yesterday because we're a day older. <laughs> That's one of the negative changes. <laughs> but what? Yeah, a day wiser. There you go. Yes, hopefully a day wiser. But uh, life is, a, is one long series of changes and, um, and trials, which are divinely orchestrated to test our heart condition and to conform us into the image of, of God's Son and to draw us ever closer to the one who never changes. That is what so, is so stable about our God. He doesn't ever change. That's stability in our life, right? When he makes a promise, he keeps it. He never, ever changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and how long? Forever. Daniel. Now, his name in Hebrew means God is my judge. He was born during the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah was one of the few good kings of the southern province of, of Judah. And he became king in 640 B.C., at the age of eight, he became king because his evil father, King Ammon, A-M-O-N, was assassinated. And suddenly there was an eight-year-old boy on the throne. I can't picture that because I have, well, I have a nine-year-old grandchild and I have a six-year-old. I can't picture them, either one of them, on the throne of a country. But... Good thing is that when this young man was a teenager, we're talking a lot about teenagers, he really, lock, stock, and barrel, surrendered himself to the lordship of his God. That was a good thing. And he proceeded to bring a much-needed spiritual revival to the land of Judah. Wouldn't it be great to get a Christian president? I mean, a really born-again Christian president on the throne. I don't want to say throne. <laughs> In the, in the White House, um, so that we could maybe have a spiritual revival in this land. But you know, we don't need a president who's born again. We, we should be bringing about the revival. If we're truly being the salt and light, we should be. And praying like we should be, we could see a revival. Judah did, and they were in really, really evil times because not only was his father very wicked, but his grandfather was King Manasseh. He was super evil. 
He even brought into Solomon's temple all kinds of paraphernalia to worship Baal. Talk about, you know, defiling the temple and all kinds of things to worship the, star, the host of heaven, which was, you know, the stars and the moon and the sun. No wonder God was so mad. Um, and Josiah, he cleansed the temple. Who does that remind you of? Jesus, exactly. He cleansed the temple of all that evil stuff. And <clears throat> he had the houses of the Sodomites broken down. Now that certainly wasn't very politically correct, was it? He also prohibited the horrific offering of children to the god Molech, which is another thing our country needs to stop doing. And he encouraged the exclusive worship of Jehovah God and outlawed all other forms of worship. Good for him. That was great. And the Lord held back judgment upon Judah because of the reign of this good king, Josiah. The prophet Jeremiah was a contemporary of King Josiah. In fact, he served him as both his friend and his confidant. And he was very, very brokenhearted when King Josiah died at only 39 years of age. You know, the weeping prophet Jeremiah, he wept bitterly when Josiah died. Well, another contemporary of King Josiah and Jeremiah was a priest whose name was Ezekiel. And um, he too benefited from the spiritual revival that was brought to Judah because of the reign of King Josiah. As did our man Daniel. Daniel was born during the time of King Josiah's reign. And he benefited as a young guy. And so too obviously did his parents. Now we don't know anything about Daniel's parents. His mother and his father. We don't know who they were. We don't know anything about them. But we can assume that they were God-fearing people. Why? Well based on the name they gave their son. God is my judge. And also based on the fact of his obvious biblical, strong biblical foundation. He was a, a man at a young age who had great biblical godly character and faith. So we know they must have been God-fearing people. Many believe that the prophetic words of Isaiah to King Hezekiah, who was a descendant of David, indicate, as I already said, that Daniel and the other young men who were taken as captives to Babylon in that first Jewish exile were of royal ancestry. Now here's what Isaiah had said. And think about how specific this is. This was a hundred years before these young guys were taken as captives to Babylon. And Isaiah said to King Hezekiah, Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Now let me tell you something. When Isaiah said that, Babylon was not even a factor on the world stage. He said, they're going to be carried to Babylon. And he said, nothing shall be left. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shall beget, shall they take away. In other words, the descendants of King Hezekiah, the descendants of David, King David, are going to be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And that is exactly what happened. Daniel and the others were made eunuchs, and they served in the, in the palace of the king of Babylon. God knows the future, doesn't he? 
Daniel had this sad opportunity. I don't know if you call it opportunity or what you want to, or word you want to use, but <clears throat> he observed national apostasy. What is apostasy? Turning from the true faith and the and the the, the true scripture, the word of God. He witnessed that <clears throat> occurring in his beloved homeland of Israel. <clears throat> and isn't that what we're witnessing today? Apostasy, you know, it said the uh, Revelation 2 and 3 said that the end of the church would be a time of apostasy, the lukewarm church and apostasy, and that's certainly what we're living in today. So we're, we know what it feels like, what Daniel was observing. We can empathize with that. As a teen, he experienced firsthand the consequences of what happens to a people, what happens to a nation when their political leaders are ungodly, when they turn from God. And also when their supposed spiritual leaders water down the truth, compromise on the truth, the word of God. In 609 BC, King Josiah died in a battle. We'll talk about this more in the, in the weeks to come, but he died in a battle against um, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. <clears throat> and unfortunately, as so often happens, with his death also came the death of all his spiritual reforms. Isn't that sad? The next four kings, and there were only four after him in uh, Judah, they all were in rapid succession. One of them only lasted three months. Two of them were his sons, by the way, but they were all evil. They all did evil in the sight of God. Isn't that sad? Mm. And we'll talk about a brief history of those last four kings probably next week if I get past the skeptics of the book. Well, that, so that's the first specialty factor of the book of Daniel is the man, Daniel himself. The second specialty factor is his message, his message, his God-inspired message. And above every other subject that Daniel wrote about was God's sovereignty in the affairs of men, which includes rulers of nations and the nations themselves and even world empires. God is sovereign over all of it. Although considerable power and freedom of will has been given to God's created beings, yet he overrules everything, both the evil and the good, for the accomplishment of his plans and purposes. And he never violates his truth, he never violates his, his righteousness, and he never violate, violates his holiness. In taking everything, the good and the bad, and orchestrating it, you know, to accomplish his purposes, and yet never violating his righteousness, his holiness. Isn't that amazing? You have to be God to be able to do that. <laughs> he's omniscient, he's omnipotent. That's amazing. He, we serve an awesome God. One of the key verses of the book of Daniel, and here's where I'll actually have you reading something from the book. If you'll look at Daniel 4, look at... Um, Kind of the middle of the of verse 17, Daniel 4, 17. Daniel comes right after Ezekiel, and he's the last of the major prophets. There's four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then after Daniel, we begin the minor prophets, and that's only based upon the size of the book, not the man, not the importance of the man. But in Daniel 4, look at the middle of the verse where it begins by saying, To the intent, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men. That's a key verse as to the sovereignty of God. 
in the book of Daniel. Now, another central passage that states this truth, and there are many of them, but one, another one is found in Daniel 2. If you go over to Daniel 2 and look at verses 20 to 22, <clears throat> it says, Blessed, Daniel 2.20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. Who changes them? God. He removes kings and sets up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwelleth in him. So, overriding message, the sovereignty of God and how he is in control of everything. A special feature of the book of Daniel is that the name, the Most High God, the Most High, is used repeatedly for Jehovah God. And that is the translation of the Hebrew El Elyon. El Elyon means the most high. It actually literally means the possessor of heaven and earth. And do you know who first used this particular name for God? Anybody want to take a guess? Who first used this name for God? El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. He came from Ur. Abraham, yes. And of all people, he used it speaking to the king of Sodom. There's got to be a message in that, right? <laughs> That's in Genesis 14. Only David, only King David in the book of Psalms used this particular name for God more than Daniel. And there is a message in that fact. And the message to the Jews who were taken captive to Babylon, which is where the book of Daniel begins, by the way. That's where it begins, as they're taken captive, um, is the same message that is given to you and I today in the 21st century. God was not suffering defeat when Nebuchadnezzar came over and took his people captives. It, that wasn't God suffering defeat. That wasn't the, the gods of the Babylonians proving that they were more mighty than the God of Israel. Not at all. If, as a matter of fact, would you look at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2? It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, that was one of the three, uh, three of the four kings that followed King Josiah, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. That was 605 B.C. And look at the next words. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Who, who turned the captives, the, Jew, the Jewish people, over to King Nebuchadnezzar? The Lord did it. He was in control. It wasn't that he was defeated by the Babylonian gods. He wasn't suffering defeat. Through his prophet, God was reminding his people, as he reminds you and I yet today, that El Elyon is the most high God. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. And he's the creator, right? And the creator has every right to rule over his creation. He is the one who put the Jews into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. He was chastising them. Whom he loveth, he chasteneth. He was proving his love for them. He was then, as yet today, providentially working his purposes toward the eventual full display of his rightful king the exalted Lord Jesus, and the redemption of Israel. All of this is to get Israel saved. Well, and it is El Elyon who has allowed the Gentiles, by the way, to dominate and persecute and or oppress Israel ever since. From the, from the time of the Babylonian captivity, the time of Daniel, to their dominance, as we'll be talking about 
by the Medo-Persian Empire, and then by the Greek Empire, and then followed by the Roman Empire, and throughout the many years that the Jewish people lived outside the land, dispersed to all kinds of Gentile nations of the world. Even since Israel's resurrection from the dead, that she's back in her land in 1948, there can be no argument given that she is not still mightily oppressed and persecuted and hated by the Gentile nations. She's surrounded by Gentile nations that want to obliviate her, right? We're still in the times of the Gentiles. There's no argument about that. And this is a situation that is only going to get worse during the seven years of tribulation under the Antichrist and his revived form of the Roman Empire. It will not end. The times of the Gentiles, which you have in the, you're represented by Nebuchadnezzar's dream of chapter 2 and the image, uh, the times of the Gentiles will not end until Christ's second coming. All of this is preparing Israel for that time when he appears at his second coming, not the rapture, but the end of the tribulation. She finally looks upon him after going through the fire, fiery furnace for seven years. She recognizes him whom she pierced, and she mourns for him, and she repents, and she gets saved. That's what it's all about, getting Israel. She's never been saved nationally, corporately, has she? Because she not only turned from God in the Old Testament to idols, but she rejected his son when he sent him. Daniel repeatedly emphasizes the fact that although various Gentile rulers sit on their thrones, their authority is only by way of and under the sovereign rulership of El Elyon, the Most High God. This was true then, and this is true also today, no matter how unwilling mankind is to accept that fact. You know, the rulers of the nations, think of some of them, Ayatollah, Khomeini, and Vladimir Putin, and whoever you name, even those in our country, they think that they're kind of running the show, don't they? they? They don't have a clue that they are merely puppets in the hands of God Almighty. Interestingly, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the first Gentile king of this times of the Gentiles, which I'll talk more about in a minute, but he was the first king of that whole long times of the Gentiles, which will, will not end until the end of the tribulation. He gave testimony to God's sovereignty. Did you know that? He gave testimony that God was the most high God. After, I mean, he learned that the hard way. He learned it traumatically through a seven-year-long period of total insanity, living like a beast, eating, walking around on all fours and eating the grass. But when he suddenly came to his right mind, he gave public testimony that the God of Daniel and the God of Israel is the true God, the Most High God. That is amazing, isn't it? That's one day what's going to happen with the whole times of the Gentiles because all the nations also will one day come out from their insanity and recognize the true God. Um, Actually, the two of the monarchs of the first two empires, the Babylonian Empire, King Nebuchadnezzar, and the, um, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, I think it was King Darius, they both gave testimony of the lordship of Daniel's God. And they further made proclamation that that truth should be announced to their whole kingdoms. Is that not amazing? Talk about an influence that Daniel and his three friends had on two empires. It's amazing. Well, within the overarching theme of Daniel, the overarching theme is the sovereignty of the Most High God. 
Well, within that theme is the coming of the Messiah to reign over the whole world, which he one day will do. The stages of Israel's long history of Gentile dominance and oppression and persecution that are presented to us in Daniel are all God-orchestrated in order to bring Israel to himself through her acceptance of the sin-atoning work of his son on the cross, whereby she will then, as we have, receive his righteousness, and she will be saved. All Israel shall be saved. Daniel contains prophetic, prophetic revelation of both the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. First and second comings. In Daniel 9, and when we finally get to that great chapter, we'll be parked there for quite a while. Daniel chapter 9. We find the prediction of the Lord, the Messiah. We know him to be the Lord Jesus Christ. But we find prediction of the Messiah's first coming and even his death. Because it says in Daniel 9, um, I'm not sure what verse, is it 25? I don't have it here on my notes. But it says that he will be cut off. That speaks of his death. The Messiah will come, but he'll be cut off. But not for himself. Did Jesus die for himself? No, he died for you and I. He was sinless. He didn't need to die. He died for us. Um, so we find that not only was his first coming predicted in Daniel, but even his death. You know, that was the, the disciples of Jesus had such a problem. And so did all of Israel, that the Messiah would have to die. But there it was all along in the book of Daniel, that he would be cut off. He would die. Well, he was going to be the Passover lamb. And what do you do with the Passover lamb? Slay it. Yeah. I mean, it was so obvious, but they missed it. Is it verse 26, 926, it says he would be cut off. So in Daniel um, 9, we find prediction of his first coming. And then in Daniel chapters 2 and 7, we find predictions concerning the Messiah's second coming. In chapter 2, the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is, is pictured as the stone. Great stone that comes out of heaven. A stone cut out without hands. That speaks of his deity. Not a, not a human stone, a divine stone. He comes out of, uh, out of heaven and he, he fills the whole earth. That speaks of the millennial kingdom. So there we have Christ's second coming, and there Christ is pictured as deity. Then in chapter 7, he, this is his second coming. He's called the son of man who comes with the clouds from heaven. That's his humanity. So we have both his deity and his humanity. There's so much. You don't have to worry about getting all this. This is an overview, of overview, but we'll be talking more specifically about these things when we get into those chapters. But another factor that makes the book of Daniel so extraordinary is its prophetic message, which certainly supports the theme of God's sovereignty because he alone is omniscient. <clears throat> you have to be omniscient. That means all-knowing to be able to declare, declare the end from the beginning. Right? Nobody else can do that unless you're God and you're omniscient. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet come. So prophecy proves that God is God, that he is all-knowing. The Bible is not, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> not merely a hodgepodge of mysterious, apocalyptic um, drama, as some people think of it. That's not the, the, the God is not, you know, sitting anxiously on his throne in heaven and watching the cycles of human history and hoping that maybe from time to time, maybe if America gets a, a Christian president, he can intervene and he can insert his proclaimed agenda. That is not the 
case at all. It is quite the opposite. His prophecies are precision programmed on a very organized calendar set on a countdown schedule that pegs future events not only for Gentile powers, there's his countdown calendar, you know, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, then revived Roman Empire, you know, in the ten toes. That's his calendar for the Gentile nations. And then he has a very precise countdown calendar for Israel as well, which is called the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. He also has a precise countdown calendar for the church age. And you can find that in the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. He's given us calendars. He's also given us the feasts of Israel, which serve as a calendar for the Messiah and all his important activities. Just this weekend was the Feast of Trumpets, and I was really looking up, <laughs> waiting for that trumpet to sound. Um, but he's given us everything we need so we don't just flounder around. We know where we're going. We know where history is going. Aren't you glad you know the end of the book? If you don't, you need to be here in the study and we'll learn more about it. Um, so his, his prophecies are precise and in spite of themselves and generally speaking, in spite of their tremendous egos, the Gentile kings and their kingdoms inadvertently, unwittingly, unknowingly serve God's purpose. They might think they're in control, but they're not. The prophecies of Daniel outline their movements right to the coming role of the one who will epitomize all of the ungodly, all of the egotistical, self-important kings who have ever ruled. He'll be the worst of all of them put together, and his name is what? What do we commonly call him? We don't know his name yet, but the Antichrist. He will epitomize this whole uh, times of the Gentiles. He'll, he'll be the worst of the worst. The prophetic chronological timetable for world history from the time of the Babylonian captivity to the second coming of Christ, given prophetically through Daniel by the Most High God, is not open to the unbelieving world. You don't turn on the news and hear about this. Okay, everybody, here is where we are in history, right here. Do you know, want to know, by the way, do you want to know where we are on this, on this chart? And you see that um, little gray area where it says indefinite gap, church age? See that? Well, you see that little black line at the bottom of that? That's where we are. That's where we are. Wouldn't that be amazing to turn on the TV and hear that on the news? Okay, here's where we are, and here's what's going on in the world scene, and this is why we know where we are in God's prophetic time. That would be amazing. But the world does. If you show this to the world, they laugh at it. They scoff at it. They say those crazies, you know? Um, but, it, but this is for, it's kind of like a family secret, that is only for those of the family of God who can be trusted with it. <clears throat> to truly understand the prophecies and the symbolism of Daniel and books like Revelation, and because there's a lot of symbolism. I mean, we're going to talk about beasts, and we're going to talk about beasts with wings and beasts with different heads and horns and all kinds of things, and weeks being years. But <clears throat> to truly understand all of those things, the symbolism and prophecies, the entire Bible needs to be taken into account. You have to know the whole counsel of God. And it is one whole, one continuous long story. And it's so perfect. It never contradicts. Biblical symbolism, we could say, is just like the Lord's parables. You know, in Matthew 13, the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak so much in parables? And he said to them, well, it's because these are mysteries that are 
to be known to, by you, but they're concealed from unbelievers. Same thing is true with symbolism, prophetic symbolism and prophecies, even without symbolism. They're for us to know, for those who really have the Holy Spirit, you're born again, for us to know because we believe and we can understand them. Our eyes, if you show them to the world, they don't have eyes to see and ears to hear it. So it's kind of like a family secret. And the prophetic timetable that is found in the book of Daniel develops along these two basic lines that frequently parallel each other. One is known as the times of the Gentiles. The other is known as the 70 weeks prophecies, uh, prophecy. The first one, the times of the Gentiles, is a period in which God rules Israel indirectly because of her disobedience to him and because of her rejection of his son. He rules her over her through the Gentiles rather than using her as his first plan was to extend his kingdom rule over the world. That's why he placed Israel in the belly button of the world land masses, you know, so that she could reach the world for him. But because she turned to other gods and disobeyed him, he now rules over her indirectly through the Gentile nations. This period of time does not indicate the entire history of Gentile empires. You don't find on here the Chinese dynasties, do you? Or American history or South American history. This is only the, with regard to Gentile empires that would oppress Israel um, when in her land. And the term, the times of the Gentiles, is not given to us by Daniel. You don't find it in the book of Daniel. Who gave us that term? Jesus Christ. He gave it to us in Luke 21, 24, when he said that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And that period began in 605 B.C. I'm going to go with the 605 B.C. date instead of the 606, but it doesn't really matter. When Daniel was taken captive, and it will not end until Christ returns, ends the reign of the Antichrist, and then sets up the stone from heaven, sets up his kingdom worldwide for a thousand years. Well, another way in which God gave us his, in his family, a way to tell time, is by the process, progress of his program for Israel. And this was given to us in the most amazing prophecy in all the word of God, which is the 70 weeks prophecy. It is the most amazing because it is the most precise. It is just incredible. When Israel's 70 years of being captive in Babylon were over, as Jeremiah had predicted, and she was allowed by decree to return to her homeland, she found out through Daniel's writings that she had another period of 70 years laying before her. But it was not to be calculated in literal years, but in weeks of years. How many days in a week? Seven. So a week of years is seven years. She was going to have 70 weeks of years, which equals 490 years. When those 490 years were over, Gabriel told Daniel, Israel's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. She would have her transgressions ended. She would um, be reconciled to God through his, the Messiah. And um, the kingdom of righteousness would be established. 490 years until all that would happen, Israel would be saved. 
Well, the countdown, we know when it began because Daniel was told. He said, when the decree is issued forth to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, when that decree is issued forth, the time, the clock will begin ticking off those 490 years. We know the date because it's given to us in the Bible. It was the first of Nisan, 444 BC. King Artaxerxes issued that decree. And then the clock ticked and went all the way to 483 years and stopped. You know what stopped the clock from ticking? Daniel told us it was when they cut off their own Messiah. The minute they did that, the, the prophetic clock for Israel stopped ticking. So she has seven years to go. 483 have already ticked off, seven to go. What are those, what's that last week of years gonna be? The seven years of tribulation and when does it begin ticking again? After the church is gone, he's done with the church, it will begin when Israel signs her covenant with death. It's called covenant with hell. When she signs that treaty with the Antichrist, not knowing who he is, being deceived, and signs it with him, the seven years will begin again. <clears throat> and when, <clears throat> when it is all over, there will be national repentance. She will learn through the fiery furnace under the Antichrist. You know, all the, all the dross will be, a lot of people will be saved, a lot of Jews will be saved, a lot of will be martyred, but when he returns and saves her from total annihilation, Israel will be saved. Daniel is one of two major prophetic books in the word of God. <clears throat> and the other one is, you all know, the book of Revelation, yes. Daniel is to the Old Testament what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament. However, Daniel, and this is interesting, Daniel focuses more on Gentile nations in their relation to Israel, whereas Revelation focuses more on Israel in her relation to Gentile nations. The two books complement one another. Um, they complement, in that Daniel lays down the foundation for Revelation, while Revelation really helps us better understand Daniel. You know, Daniel was to seal up the book. And he, and he was told that, he that it wouldn't really be understood until the last days. And you know, it's only been in the last hundred years or so that people are really writing more commentaries on the book of Daniel than any other book in the Bible. It is being open to us. We're understanding it. And so that is another indication we're in the last days. Nine of the 12 chapters of Daniel are prophetic. Um, and they sweep from Daniel's time of crisis in Israel's history all the way to the second coming. That's, that's a, a great big panorama of history, <clears throat> a long time. The one exclusion is the church age, which is a, was a mysterious unknown to the Old Testament prophets, not only to Daniel, but to all of them. They didn't know about the, the church age. That's that indefinite gap that we're in right now. It is in the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9, 24 to 27 that the first definitive time related prophecy of the coming Messiah was presented. And that is in verse 25 of chapter 9. And this is what makes this prophecy so amazing. It, it marked the time of the Messiah's coming. 500 years before Jesus came, Daniel was told when they could expect the Messiah, and it marks the time of his coming so very specifically that did you know Jewish religious rulers, uh, spiritual rulers, rabbis, or whatever, to this day, try to forbid any of their people from doing the calculation of the numbers in the 70 weeks prophecy. 
using their calendar and figuring it all out because if they do that calculation, they are without excuse in rejecting Jesus as Messiah. Because when you do the calculation and you begin on Nisan 1, 444 BC, and you go forward 483 years, um, that is the, and you have to consider the fact that the Jews use a lunar calendar, we use a solar, so it's 360 days a year, and, and you have to account for leap year. But when you do all those calculations, you get to the very day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and proclaimed, proclaimed himself officially as the Messiah of Israel. And that is so very specific that they don't want people doing the calculations, just like they don't want them reading Isaiah 53. God's prophecy reveals history, his story, and his story has revealed the truth of his prophecy. Not all of the predictions of Daniel and Revelation have yet been fulfilled, have they? However, those that have been fulfilled, and there are many, came to pass so precisely that you and I can have 100% confidence that the ones that are still yet future are going to happen. The rapture one day is going to happen. The tribulation is real. There are seven years to go. There is going to be an antichrist. There's going to be second coming. All this is true. It's not just pie in the sky. It's actually going to happen one day. But Daniel is not only significantly prophetic, it's also significantly practical. And that is the purposed intention of all scriptural prophecy. God is serious <clears throat> about his prophecies. You don't like prophecy? I've told you this before. Too bad. One-fourth of the Bible is prophetic. <laughs> you better get to like it. <clears throat> and um, God, he's serious because it proves his omniscience. It proves who he is, that he is the only one who is God because he can tell the end from the beginning. It demonstrates his omnipotence, that he can orchestrate everything together to fulfill his plans. And it serves believers as a guide for his plan for history. Most importantly, however, prophecies are meant to instruct us for living in the present. Prophecies are not given um, to just tickle, tickle our curiosity. You know, and there are a lot of people who just study prophecy because they want to know what's going on. And who is the Antichrist? Is he going to be a Muslim? Is he going to be a Jew? Is he going to be this? Is he going to be that? You know, people just curious. Prophecy is given for the intention of affecting our character our lifestyle, our priorities, our motives. You know, the Apostle Peter asked a very important question which we should ask ourselves. He said, seeing that we know that all these things shall be dissolved. You know what that means? All the time you spent decorating your house, one day it's going to be global warming. <laughs> the whole earth is going to be warm, uh, warmed up. Yeah, It's going to be burned away. And uh, so where are our priorities? He said, knowing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be? That really gets your priorities in a row, doesn't it? I mean, you should be laying, storing up for yourself treasures in heaven, redeeming your time wisely. Because everything on this earth, except the word of God and eternal souls, is going to disappear one day. So what are you spending your time doing? You know, you can, we can spend it on a lot of really dumb things that don't count for eternity. If we only have insight into the future because of God's prophetic word, without that insight making a difference in our lives, that insight is use, useless. So prophecy's purpose is to sober us for living today with tomorrow in mind. All right, I know I have run out of time. There is one other thing that makes this book so special, and that is the miracles of the book. And there are some mighty miracles in the book of Daniel. Who can name one right off the top of your head? The lions. Why is that always the first one? Of course, that's always the first one. Daniel in the lion's den. What was the other one that you're going to say? 
the fiery furnace that Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael survived the fiery furnace and who was walking amidst them? The son of man, the son of a God, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. And that they emerged without even the smell of smoke on them? That's pretty amazing. What about this dream that Daniel, I mean, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was given by God in chapter 2? It would be pretty amazing if I was able to tell Barbara Maddox what she dreamt last night. Wouldn't it? I can't even tell you what I dreamt last night. I wake up and I can kind of remember it, and then by morning I forgot it. But Nebuchadnezzar woke up and he was very upset because he knew he had an important dream, but he couldn't remember it. Well, Daniel, miraculous, that is a miracle. Daniel told him what he dreamt and then he interpreted it. What about the other thing? Handwriting on the wall with just a hand. That's a miracle. Um, I'll tell you what, the salvation of Nebuchadnezzar was one of the greatest miracles of the book. And, of course, prophecy itself. And it's loaded with prophecy. Prophecy is all miraculous because only... Our supernatural God can tell the end from the beginning. So there's miracles that also make the book very, very special. All right, thank you for your patience. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father God, for leading us to a study of a book in your holy scriptures that is going to reassure us in these troubling times of uneasiness in this world and increasing ungodliness, a book that assures us, reassures us that you are El Elyon, you are the Most High God, the possessor potentate of heaven and earth. You are in control of all things, the big and the small, the big and the small in our own lives and the big and the small on the world scene. You are the universal expert at taking the messes that mankind makes in this world and using them to accomplish your very purposes. Thank you for the comfort that it brings to us to know that nothing happens apart from your sovereign direction or permission for your ultimate glory and the ultimate good of all those who truly do know you. And I pray, Father, that every woman in this room has a real personal relationship with your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that she truly knows that she is indwelt by your spirit from above And he is her Lord and Savior, because none of us want to be left behind when you come for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.